Today's sermon text is Luke 3:21 through 4:13. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 859. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mattathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Joanam, the son of Resa, oh, sorry, the son of Shelatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mattathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Beliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Medith- Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. (laughs) And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Lindsay, for your ministry of pronunciation. We appreciate that. Good morning. Let me open our time together in God's word with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, a firm foundation for us to stand upon uh, the very words of life given to us. And we pray that today you would show us Christ in them. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, over the decade of the 2010s, I think is what we'll call them, the decade of the 2010s, there was a pretty clear king of the box office. If you went and saw a popular movie in the 2010s, the, there's a good chance that you went at some point and saw a superhero movie. So five out of the top ten grossing movies of the decade were all Marvel movies. And most of these really popular superhero movies have a couple of things in common. Uh, First, and what is maybe most obvious, is that there is a hero who is not like us. That's part of what makes them interesting. They have to have some sort of superpower or some piece of technology, something that sets them apart. But the other feature that that helps make a good superhero movie is not just that they have to be unlike us, but they need to also be like us in some way, too. So Spider-Man is just like a high school student. Uh, Captain America was once a scrawny guy with just a lot of fight in him. Ant-Man is just a dad trying to make it through the world, and and he just has a really cool suit. That's the tightrope that these characters have to walk while movie makers and comic makers are trying to make them. They have to be like us and unlike us. Now, creators of superhero movies, of comics, they have marketing departments that are really, really good at drawing people to come see their movies. But I actually kind of think the appeal of that kind of hero, someone who's like us and unlike us, is more than just really clever marketing. I think that it's more like a dim reflection of something that's that's real. Something that taps into truth that stirs us to long for that kind of hero. Maybe even as you think of your own heroes, you feel that yourself. You desire someone who is like you to draw near, that you can identify with, but not just like you. Somebody who is better than you. Someone who is unlike you and can save you from your weakness. And this morning, we are going to fix our eyes firmly upon such one. We're going to move from the ministry of John the Baptist that we look at last week and his call to repentance and fix our eyes on Christ. And I hope that we see in him that our desire for a savior, someone who is like us and who is unlike us, is ultimately rooted in who Christ is. And that really both of those things, being like us and unlike us, are critically necessary if Jesus is meant to be the savior of his people. 
Now, as you heard Lindsay read a moment ago, uh, probably the thing that sticks out most is how many names she had to pronounce. But the second thing I hope that you heard, and even in that list, there's a phrase, a word that comes up over and over. Son of, son of, son of, but that's intentional. And I'd say that's one reason why we read it. One thing that you heard said multiple points is that Jesus is the son of God. And that's the idea that we're going to use to kind of organize our time together this morning. And if you really want the main point of this passage, it's there at the top of your note sheet if you've got one of those coming in. Jesus is the true and the better son of God. Now that sentence, to begin with, implies that there are other sons of God. To be a true and better, there's got to be a not true and worse, I guess. So there's, there are other sons of God. And that may be a little surprising, but we're going to start here this morning at looking at the failed sons of God. So throughout the Bible, there are a couple of individuals, other individuals, who are referred to as the son of God. And chronologically, if you're reading the Bible, the first one we hit is Adam. You, you just heard in Luke 3.38, Adam is called the son of God. And if you think back to the beginning of the Bible, you see why that is. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, breathes life into him, tells him to be, he, he's made in God's image to be, that have dominion over the earth. He's been, meant to be like a representative leader over all the earth in God's stead so that people would look to him and see a picture of what God's rule was supposed to look like. But we all know how the story of Adam goes. He doubts God's goodness. He ends up rebelling against God's word. He fails in his job to keep the garden and to guard it. But after Adam's failure, God still desires for his blessing to go forward to all the nations. And so he actually continues his project, the Son of God project, through Abraham. Makes this promise to Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth through his descendants. And that promise passes on down through Jacob, who is eventually renamed Israel. And as we see God's relationship with Israel unfold, we realize it's not contractual. God isn't saying like, you do these things and I'll be a good, uh, I'll be a good landlord and give you a place to live. It's more than that. It's a lot more than that. So when you get to Exodus 4.22, God sends Moses into Exodus and he he says this, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God says that he is working through Israel to display his character to the world through his son. But you probably know the story of Israel too. They're freed from slavery and almost immediately after they get out of slavery... They begin grumbling and complaining. They repeat the sin of Adam. They rebel against God. They build an image of a golden calf, even, to worship in the wilderness. They fail to honor God as their father. So there's one last Old Testament character that we see this go-to. God makes a promise to David and says, God tells David, I will be a father to one of your offspring. That's Second Samuel 7.14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And that's a gracious promise. Think of all the failure of Israel, all the ways God could just say, let me just wipe the slate clean. But instead, he says, I'm going to uphold this promise. I'm going to do it through David and his offspring. 
But again, you may know how that story ends. This main point is titled the failure, the failed sons of God. So you know where it goes. David himself fails to uphold the holiness of God. Maybe we think Solomon. If we just look down the line, the next guy, he's going to be the one. But Solomon fails. And it's like as you read through the Old Testament, you get king after king where you feel your hopes maybe go, is this one going to be the one? And inevitably those hopes are shattered time after time and it gets worse and worse. Even last week at the end of the passage last week, we saw that there was this hope, this desperate hope that there would be the Christ, the son of God. That's what people looked at John and said, maybe he is the Christ. And John said, no, I'm I'm not, but pointed to the almighty one who was to come. And that leads to our passage this morning where we see the true and better son of God. And we get here really three portraits of Jesus as the son of God. We're going to break this just into three uh, steps, kind of three main chunks of text here. And the first portrait we get is that Jesus is the divine son of God. Jesus is the divine son of God. So verse 21, Jesus is baptized and he is, comes up praying. Now, if you were here last week, it may sound a little confusing to think through Jesus getting baptized because of what we said last week. Last week we said baptism is, when we do it here at our church, uh, what John proclaims, he's proclaiming a baptism for the repentance of sins. Why then is Jesus being baptized? D- does he need to repent from sin? Clearly, no, he is not being baptized in the same way that we are saying we are repenting from sins and showing that in our baptism. But his baptism does identify himself with us, and it still is in relation to sin. But while our baptisms are pictures of us dying to our sin, repenting, going under the water, and coming up with new life in Christ, his is not dying to his sin, but for the sins of others. We can think of the baptisms we do here as looking back to what Christ has done for us. And Jesus' baptism here is looking forward to what he would do for us in his burial and resurrection. He identifies with us in his baptism. And then at the end of verse 21, it says, The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if a voice comes from heaven, we should really pay attention to it in the Bible. That's really important. And here, God the Father is speaking about the identity of his son. And what he says, the the words that he says here, they're picking up on two Old Testament promises to say, this Jesus is the Davidic king. That's Psalm 2-7. So there was a failed Davidic king. And God now is saying, this is actually the one that has been looking for. So Psalm 2, 7, the the psalmist writes, you, the king, are my son. Today I have begotten you. And God takes that up and says, this is the son. And and then he picks up Isaiah 42, 1. I think that's not there on your sheet. It's just reference if you want to go look at this later. But Isaiah 42, 1, he says, behold, my servant whom whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This this son, Jesus, is the spirit-indwelt servant of the Lord. And in those things, he's fulfilling the hopes of the Old Testament. Jewish people could look at him and say, he's the one we've been longing for. 
But there is something here that is unfolding and that will unfold throughout the rest of the New Testament that is far beyond what the Old Testament prophets were hoping for. We actually get to see that Jesus here is not just like a human who is adopted as God's son, but he is instead truly God. He's truly human, yes, but also truly God. More specifically, he is the second person of the Trinity. Now, we read earlier from from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, You'll hear it referenced a few times in the sermon, but Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of the foundational prayers and confessions of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's forever a central tenet to our faith. If you go on our website and say, what does Philadelphia Baptist Church believe, and go click on the thing that says God, the very first sentence says there is one and only one living and true God. But then here and elsewhere in Scripture, we see something a little different, something that's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. It's the doctrine of the Trinity, that we believe in one God, But then we see a father sending a spirit onto a son. Now, kids, I would love your help. I know some of you have memorized parts of the New City Catechism. Uh, This is question three. So even if you didn't make it to like question 50, maybe you got question three. Uh, And if you know the answer, raise your hand and I'd love to hear it. How many persons are there in God? What you got? Very good. There are three persons and one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you you may, if you look at this and say, like, okay, show me all of that here. May not be able to show everything about the Trinity in these verses. You go to John and you can find that there is a one Father who uh, the Son will say to the Father, I and the Father are one. You go to Paul's benediction in Ephesians and find him praising the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit for what he has done. The Trinity is built in throughout the Bible. But, but this is one of the most concise places where we can see the three persons of the Trinity coming together for the purpose of demonstrating to us and to the watching world this man walking around with a body that is hungry and thirsty and sleeps. This is the divine Son of God. That's the first portrait we get. Jesus, the divine Son And next we get this genealogy. And I know that genealogies are pretty easy to skip over. And I know one person who really wishes we skipped over the genealogy this morning. I had not, yes. But they are still breathed out by God and useful for training. And this genealogy is here specifically to teach us that Jesus is the human son of God. Uh, There is another genealogy we find in Matthew chapter 1, if you know Andrew Peterson's Christmas album. That one I can actually, I can tell you all of Matthew 1's genealogy because I can sing it for you. I'm not going to do that now, I can do that later. Uh, And there are some differences that you can find in there. Go to a good study Bible if you want to look at those. But the biggest difference is where they go and where they end. So Matthew, Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1, he begins with Abraham. He's like showing God, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise to David. Luke, however, does something different. He's working his backwards from Jesus all the way back to Adam and ultimately to God himself. 
Why, why though? Why that difference? Why not just copy and paste? There's the Holy Spirit inspired them both, so couldn't he just do the exact same thing? Well, here Luke and the Holy Spirit is wanting to make clear that Jesus is truly human. I brought up superheroes earlier, and one of the most well-known superheroes is Superman. Uh, I checked this with my slightly nerdy wife yesterday. So this is one of the ironies of Superman. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Superman is not a human. He's uh, Kryptonian. Kryptonian. He's from the planet Krypton. He is non-human who just appeared on the earth and has some human kind of properties about him. Come to save some humans. Now, if, if Jesus is like Superman, if he's just a non-human who's come just to appear to be human and save some humans, we have a salvation problem. Okay, Corey read this earlier and it's there on your note sheet. This is just, this is straight from Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That logic is tight. If Jesus is not truly human in every respect, there is no atonement for sins. The wrath of God against sin still sits on us if he is like Superman. Just God, but kind of human, not really human. We need a human son of God if we want his life to mean anything for us who are humans. And that brings up some potential tension that you may feel. We've already said we've had the human son of God project already. and, And they've all ended in failure. Right? Every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve since the beginning has failed. They've walked in the path of Adam, in the path of Israel. So we don't just need a human son. We need a human son, but not just a human son. We need also an obedient son. And that takes us to the story in chapter 4 of Jesus, the obedient son. Uh, look back there and let's read in verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, that that introduction should have echoes of things we've already said. right? It should call back what we've already said about the failed projects. Adam was tempted by the serpent. And even here, it says that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He can go find temptation kind of anywhere. He'll find temptation just walking throughout the streets of Judah and Jerusalem. But he's brought into the wilderness for a specific reason. It's because he is also the son of Israel, the son of God, the new and better Israel, hungry in the wilderness. But in both of those stories, the devil has maintained an undefeated record. He's already faced two sons of God. Lots of sons of God, and he is undefeated. He's batting perfectly. And here comes another son of God, and the devil seems to know that the stakes are very, very high. So verse 2, you read he's in the wilderness for 40 days. You may think he's tempted just these three times. The way that verse 2 reads actually reads more like he was tempted throughout the 40 days in the wilderness. And these three that we see here is like his uh, final project, the final push 
by the devil to tempt the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we get these three specific temptations when Jesus is at his most vulnerable, 40 days in the wilderness. And the first temptation seems relatively innocent. right? Verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, I get hungry after about four or five hours, and Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. You can imagine how hungry he is. And there's nothing inherently wrong with Jesus turning stone into bread. Uh, We actually see him make bread in Luke chapter 9. He'll feed 5,000 people from some loaves and fish. I assume he makes more bread that way. He's not condemned for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what the devil seems to be testing here is not his power. Not, not, are you powerful enough to do this? But will he trust in God for provision? Will he trust God to provide what he needs? I think this comes out in Jesus' response to the devil in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And that's a, that's a short snippet from Deuteronomy 8. If you want to, you can turn back to Deuteronomy 8. There's not, I didn't have room in here, but if you want to see this in context, in Deuteronomy 8, 3 is where he's Quoting from, and Jesus, remember just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was in the temple precincts. He was questioning the rabbis, listening there. He was a teacher among them. Like he knows his Old Testament. I think that he's not just thinking this is about bread. He knows what's going on in Deuteronomy 8. And I think if we look back there, you just see what he's quoting and how it helps us understand what the temptation is. So in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is speaking to Israel as they're about to go in the promised land. And he's telling them, hey, you need to prepare yourself. You should remember what's happened because there's more temptation to come. And in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, he's pointing back to what happened to them in the wilderness. And he says this, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is telling Israel, God let you grow hungry, and then he supplied your need. He did all of those things to show you can trust him for your provision. The temptation that Israel faced and failed in was that their needs actually kind of dethroned God. They all of a sudden said when they felt the grumble of their stomach, I don't know that God is going to do what he said he would. Let's go back. Let's go back and make a way back to Egypt. Maybe they'll take us back and feed us with some of their food. And here Jesus is walking in the same path he hears his stomach growl and the devil says you don't need god to provide for you just meet your own needs do what you can do but here jesus does not elevate his desires his needs don't push god off his throne instead he trusts in god's provision and walks faithfully with him Now, the second temptation is a little more straightforward in what is being offered by the devil and what the temptation is. It's there in verse 5 of Luke chapter 4. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, 
And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, there, uh, there is, there are some people here who would say, what the devil is doing is not honest. He doesn't actually have the authority. He, he is the father of lies. And if you're the father of lies, your native tongue is dishonesty. He's, he can't actually offer this to Jesus. I'm actually prone to think that this is a legitimate temptation that the devil offers here. Uh, think about what the devil is called elsewhere in scripture. So Ephesians 2, 2, he is the prince of the power of the air. Out of the words of Jesus in John 12, 31, the, he calls the devil the ruler of this world. He has some sort of authoritative power over these earthly kingdoms and he offers it to Jesus for the simple listed price of changing allegiance. Just change teams. Take off the jersey. I'm on team God. I will worship the Lord and worship, bow before the devil. And all of those things could be his. Now, here is the crux of the temptation. God has already promised to give these things to Jesus. Right. I read earlier from Psalm 2, 7, uh, but the very next verse in Psalm 2, 8, the Lord says to his Messiah, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. There is, Jesus knows this. There is a promised day coming when all the kingdoms of the earth will be his. But here's the catch. Here, the, the, what, the path towards that for Jesus to get to glory comes only after suffering. The path that God has Jesus walking, that Jesus knows he is meant to walk, is through the cross to that glory. And here, Satan is saying, I will take away the suffering. I can get the glory for you without the cross. You don't have to walk that way. Change teams. Maybe I'm even more generous than God. I'll give you all this stuff and all you have to do is worship me. That is a strong temptation. That's a temptation maybe you have felt before. I want the good thing at the end and I don't want the suffering that the Lord seems to have for me now. We should be thankful, brothers and sisters, that Jesus does not worship the devil, but he will wait for the Lord for the thing that is promised. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. We read it earlier. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus will not change his allegiance, even if the promised goods are all the kingdoms of the world. He will instead walk the path of suffering. That God has given to him. And we, if you belong to Christ, this is a turning, this is not the turning point, but this is a place where everything ends if Jesus gives in. But he will walk the path of suffering for the salvation of his people. Friends, this is a place where we probably feel, again, this own temptation. It's not that we know that we're coming to die for others, but there are so many good things out there that we want. And Satan can just say, it takes so much work to get there. It's so much easier if you just go this way. If you just like make allegiance with your sin, you can have that good thing for a lot simpler. And Jesus shows us the path that does not say, I will give up my soul to gain the world. And Jesus even tells us, what good is it a man if to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? Now, the, the third temptation, the devil pulls out one last trick. This is in verse, verse 9. Jesus, uh, 
rather the devil took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, he's probably on like the southeast corner. There's a big drop down below. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then the devil takes a play from Jesus's playbook. Right, you, maybe you noticed this the past two times Jesus has responded. He's started his response with, it is written. And he quotes scripture. And now the devil's like, if that's the game we're going to play by, I'll try to play by those rules. And he quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But again, Jesus sees through this temptation. This is not like a nice invitation to faith, but an attempt to put God to the test. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16 to the devil. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He will not test God, but instead trusts him. We'll walk through him with faith, not doubt. Now, if, if as we kind of look on, especially the temptation of Jesus, this last story of an obedient son, this is a place where it can feel pretty easy to say, Jesus had it easier than I did. Jesus is truly God and truly man. I'm not truly God. So like, how is this temptation even a fair fight? How, how is it that he, he, maybe he had it easier. And I understand that objection. I've felt that before. Like, if I had some, you know, if I were truly God, then I could do this pretty easily. But I actually think that that's a little incorrect. I, I think that C.S. Lewis is right. I, I like this way of thinking about what it is that Jesus underwent in temptation and why it is that Jesus actually understands temptation better than we do. C.S. Lewis says this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out how the, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. We we can say that Jesus couldn't know what temptation is like, but I think this is the truth. The truth is that compared to Jesus, we have seen just a small slice of temptation. That he has felt it to its brunt. He has seen it to the hilt. We have, we are the ones who barely comprehend it. And I think that this should help us in some way to look to Jesus and learn from him in his temptation. He was tempted like us and tempted even in greater degree than we will ever be because he always said no. I have some questions there on your note sheet just to think through this week. If this week, especially if you're in a home group here at Philadelphia Baptist Church, this would be some things to think through before that and talk together this week. So do, Do you take seriously that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour? Don't don't forget that we are fighting a tenacious spiritual enemy. Uh, Even at the very end of the temptation, the devil doesn't just give up for good, right? He doesn't like take his ball and go home. It says he just departed until an opportune time. You'll see him come back. He'll send his minions into people who will come and Jesus will cast demons out of those. But ultimately, you'll see him come into Judas himself and betray Jesus. He's waiting for the opportune time. 
when it's just right to have Jesus put to the ultimate test on the cross. For that same enemy is the enemy of all of the saints. A spiritual enemy who wants to do us eternal damage. And we should learn from Jesus, this is the next question, to wield God's word. So do you know God's word well enough to wield it against temptation? Notice how Jesus responds, always looking back to the scripture. Do you know it well enough? Do you love it and treasure it well enough to wield it? Can you recognize even when the devil is using it in the wrong ways, when people use it wrongly, like in the third temptation? Jesus is the expert fighter showing us how to wield the sword of the spirit, the word of God, so that we might make war against the attacks of the evil one. Uh, it's, it's still earlier in the, early in the year. Maybe you have some, we're past New Year's resolutions, I guess. If you want like middle of January resolution, think about memorizing some more scripture. Think about how that could be the thing that is helpful for you in your fight against the devil. Not to show off and to get uh, prizes from the BVL but to actually make war against the enemy. Are you tempted to pursue good things in godless ways? Are there good things that you want that is held or held out for you and you just think, if I would, this is so important to me that I would do anything to get it. Is that true? Be careful that you would not do anything to get that. There is nothing Nothing worth making allegiance with your sin with to get what you so long and desire. If you must make allegiance with your sin to gain some good end, you have fallen into the second temptation. Avoiding the suffering, looking to the good, and ultimately going towards the devil. These few verses are, they are a study in the ways of temptation in the subtle ways that the devil actually does want to tempt us, and a look at the strength of faith to do battle against temptation. And Christian, I, I want to just remind you one other good hope as you go in this and you think like, I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps, memorize more scripture, I want you to do that, but that's just not like, don't think that I've got to do this my own power. Remember, the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness, he later gives to his people. And so if you, brother or sister in Christ, if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit right now indwells you so that every temptation that comes against you, if you feel like, I don't have within me the, the way to fight this, you do. You do. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The strength of the temptation that you feel is less than the strength of the Holy Spirit God has given to his church and to his people. And so we should look to Jesus as an example. He is an example in our fight against temptation. But we should also, we should see that this passage, we should be most grateful that Jesus is not like us too. That he was not like Adam. That he was not like Israel. That he felt all of the brunt of temptation. For Adam, it took a few questions. For Eve, a few questions. For Israel, it took a few moments of grumbling in the wilderness. Jesus felt temptation to the full and did not give in. And because of that, we don't just learn from Jesus. But we can actually now go to Jesus in our temptation. Listen to how Hebrews four fifteen through 16 puts this. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then see, this is verse 16. What do we do now? Because all that is true, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need a high priest who is like us, able to sympathize with us, tempted in every way, but he also has to be unlike us, without sin. And now because that is the case, because that is who Christ is, we now have confidence to come to him and find mercy and grace. I love what how Kyle welcomed people in this morning. I hope you hear that and that you take that to heart. And I hope that what, what we can feel at church, or maybe even approaching Jesus, is like what Jesus wants on his team, who he calls to come near are the strong ones. Those who are mighty in battle. Those who have done their best for God this week. Who feel no question in their hearts that they've done what is right and good. Oh friends, Jesus says that he is a help so that we can go to him with confidence in our time of need. Not just when you feel really strong, but when you feel at your weakest point. He is a high priest who sympathizes with us. He is the obedient son of God who came not just to set our example, but who actually came to save sinners. And all this is meaningful because of this last point. We, we need a divine and a human and obedient son of God if we ever hope to be adopted as sons of God. The adopted sons of God. If you want to be adopted sons or daughters of God, we need this kind of son of God. This is how the early church father Augustine said it. The only son of God, having become the son of man, makes many sons of men the sons of God. I think about the voice from heaven coming down to Jesus in, uh, in chapter 3. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Maybe you've thought of that verse before. Maybe you've thought of, of Matthew 25, and the parable of the talents, where the, the master comes back and ser- says to one of his servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. If you, if you stop and think about what you want to hear when you die, when you see the Lord, that's what I want to hear. And I imagine that that's what you want to hear. You long to hear those words spoken to you one day. But without Jesus, we are all stuck. We're all sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And, and in that place, if that's where we are, then, then what happens is the outcome for Adam. Remember what happens is not welcome back into the garden, but being cast out. Never to return again. But God sent forth another son. This is why he sent his true and better son. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friend, apart from Christ, we are all sons of Adam. Trapped under the law, unable to obey it, destined only for the destiny of Adam to be cast out. We need 
a human and divine and obedient son of God. Jesus Christ, if we ever hope to hear those words, well done. Welcome, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Those words can only be good news to look forward to because he has come for us. Because he was the perfect son who did this in our stead to make many sons of glory. We'll sing this in response in just a moment and uh, I hope we sing it with gusto. Christ, the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse. Then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Thank God for his son. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the perfect one, for us. And we pray even now that you would make more sons and daughters People who would come out belonging to Adam and belong to Christ through faith. Help us, Lord, even this week as we walk forward and we are tempted to walk in the way of Adam. Remind us that by your spirit you have equipped us to walk as sons and daughters of Christ. We pray that we would do that to your glory even this week. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.